Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant Podcast. Uh, we have no uh, special guest today because we thought we were long overdue for some truly rank punditry and pop culture potpourri. So it's just me and uh, my major domo, Jack Butler. Hello, Jack. Hi. And I think another good reason is that by not having a guest today, I mean, how could we... <laughs> Who could we have had next after having Thomas Sowell, then your wife? Yeah. Then... Although we did have Michael Brendan Doherty after that. Yeah, who's no slouch. No, he's no slouch. That was, that was, it was very nice. And in fact, this week's episode is brought to you <laughs> by Sentinel Books, the publisher of My Father Left Me Ireland by National Review's own Michael Brendan Doherty. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. So, yeah, so the feedback... I mean, the feedback from Michael Bernardi was was what you would expect. Michael's a brilliant guy. It's an interesting book. Blah 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 blah. Um, it's really it's a wonderful book to uh, for to read or to give to people as a gift and all that stuff, particularly for Father's Day. Um, but uh, the feedback on the Tom Soul and and Jessica, uh, or I should say JG Prime um, episodes was. Probably the best we've ever had, I would say. Mm-hmm. Possible exception of maybe like some early Ben Sass hysteria. Um, yeah, but um, and um, it's funny how many people felt compelled to say on Twitter how much the, they like my wife more than me now. <laughs> um, and I have to say, there were a couple things I, you know, you always have um, Esprit d'Escalier, which for uh, listeners who are not. Uh, interested in French terms that sound really hoity-toity, uh, is basically that feeling you have where you sit, where you like, I, sh- I wish I had said X, you know, as a comeback. Um, the jerk store called. Exactly. They want you back. <laughs> um, and uh, so whenever you do this podcast, or uh, any podcast, or almost any time I'm ever on TV, I have Esprit d'Escalier. Um, and, uh, but with Jess, there are a bunch of things I wish we had gotten into. Um, but they just create opportunities for next time. Um, it would, I know I've brought it up before, but, um, one of my favorite stories about her dad was how anytime one of the kids had an idea for a career path, his immediate, like whether they want to become a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer or whatever it was, his, his immediate retort was, yeah, but can you eat it? And what he meant by that was, you know, having lived in a village that had been taken over both by Nazis and by the communist Red Army and had lived in a refugee camp and all that kind of stuff, he had a – and he was a guy of the soil too in a certain way. He had a very 
keen appreciation that the best economic models are attuned to basic human needs. And the further you get away from them, the more of a risk that you're taking. And anyway, it was a really interesting sort of way of thinking about the world that, you know, was sort of shaped by him. And there were a bunch of these other things. You know, we a lot of people are mad that we didn't talk about Gracie and, and, and Ralph, uh, the good cat and my wife's cat, and why I call them that. But um, anyway, since today is her birthday, I figured... Your wife or your cat? My wife. Okay. Yes. Um, I figured I should at least... Uh, uh, mention uh, and show my appreciation to everybody who who really enjoyed that episode and who pointed out how I kept giggling um, throughout the whole thing because I thought it was so much fun to finally, you know, I'm I'm not one of these worlds colliding guys anymore and so I don't mind having Jess, you know, on this podcast because I'm kind of proud that she was dumb enough to marry me. So <laughs> next so. step, your dogs. <laughs> hey, if if we ever go to the video podcast route. Um, that could be like a special feature is where we have the dogs in the studio. Um, I taught a class at Hillsdale where I brought Zoe to it. Uh-huh. I remember that. She was not very well behaved. No, but she, at least you had Hayden Park to run around in. Yes. That's that's the cross-country thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Hillsdale, for those who don't know, has one of the most amazing pieces of land, this giant cross-country f- uh, field? What do you call it? Yeah. Track? Course. Course. I just course. Said that's, course. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> hey, look, it's it's... It may be Tuesday, but it's Monday in my heart. Um, okay, so we haven't done any punditry in a very long time. Yeah, we don't have to. No, I know. I know. <laughs> or you don't have to. I know, but I feel like we should. Because um, I am in this very weird place. Uh, it's sort of a riot of nuance in my position on all this Mueller report impeachment stuff. Uh, I titled the, this episode that, but you've said that phrase before, and it's already been an episode title. I uh, I apologize. It's a, it's a phrase I use from time to time. Um, uh, You're so violently nuanced. <laughs> um, there, there's the new title. Yeah, uh, enraged nuance. No, so um, um, uh, strident ambiguity. Does that work? I'm not sure. All right. Or, or, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, well played. All right. So, first of all, this is like. Only one of the maybe the second time where I'm pretty much all on board in the during the Trump years, pretty much all on board with the prevailing conservative or Republican interpretation of a major controversy, um, at least that I can think of. I'm sure there are some minor ones that I was on board with. Kavanaugh? Kavanaugh was the first one where I was just all in, right? And the right was right and the left was wrong on that one. And... And on this, it's it's this idea that Bill Barr is this, you know, that he's basically Corey Lewandowski with a law degree. And there are all these people who are trying to turn him into just a purely Trumpist uh, lackey and hack. And I just don't buy it. I don't think that he lied. Um, I don't think that he is doing this for any of the venal motives that a lot of liberal Trump haters ascribe to people who work for Trump, I see him much more as a um, sort of a legal version of General Mattis in the sense that I think he thought – Now, I may have disagreements with him about how he views the underlying Mueller case, about how he interprets the law, about his philosophical approach to this stuff. But I don't think he's bad – I don't think he's ill-motivated and or, or has sinister motivations. I think he thought that uh, independent counsels or independent prosecutors – are a hot mess, that he's against them. Lots of people in Washington have believed that for a long time on both sides of the aisle. 
he sort of subscribes to the basic view that Rich Lowry and Andy McCarthy and a bunch of my friends subscribe to, which is that you should not have someone within the executive branch leading what is in effect a fact-finding mission for an impeachment hearing. If you want to have an impeachment inquiry, it should come out of the House and not and be done by politicians who have clear motives and, and it's a much more transparent thing. And um, and so anyway, my point is, is that I, I think that Barr, you know, we look at it this way. Don McGahn, lots and lots of people, I think unfairly, had sort of besmirched his reputation by saying that he was this sort of insider hack who had sold his, you know, sold to go work for Trump and all the rest. And the reality is he was a perfect example of a, of a transactional movement conservative who wanted to get important things done. And he goes into the administration and he is as responsible as anybody for getting Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and all of those lower court judges appointed. He was the guy who, who sherpered the whole thing. And, and then the Mueller report comes out and you find out that Don McGahn, in fact, probably saved the Trump presidency by refusing to do what McGahn referred to as uh, insane fecal matter um, <laughs> um, that Trump wanted him to do. So on, on this controversy about Barr, I'm entirely with uh, sort of the mainstream Republican Fox Newsy kind of thing. I think that when hi the history is written, we will find out that Barr was – that that the reputational hit that Barr has taken and, – and, and let's be clear. He kind of deserves to take a reputational hit. This was the pr part of the price he was set out to pay um, because he has spun in favor of the Trump administration. He has equivocated. Um, I think his summary of uh, the Mueller report was technically accurate. So he's not guilty of perjury or any of that kind of stuff. But what he was doing was he was manipulating the spin cycle, which is sort of fascinating to me that people like E.J. Dion and Benjamin Witt is that's what they're furious about is like at the end of the day, they think Barr's great crime was that he dared to deprive pundits of 27 days of pounding the table about the Mueller probe. You can't call that a cover-up, though, if if what Barr did was actually release the, the Mueller report. And it is not in the long history of sins of attorneys general. Uh, the William Sapphire smiles yes. from beyond the grave. Um, uh, in the long... We'll just let listeners figure out why you said that. And then, um, you know, the idea that... that since he didn't think – since he got stuck with the decision of whether or not to prosecute obstruction, it does not seem to me obvious that it is some great impeachable crime on Bill Barr's part to sell that decision in the most politically saleable way. And that's just not a outrage and a legal matter as a, or a matter of statecraft, but it, it costs him his reputation because he, he's taken a hit for that and, and, and I'm sure he knew he would. But we don't – my guess is that when the history is written, we will find out that he made a lot of compromises and a lot of tough decisions and sacrifices in order to set right the DOJ as he saw it. And Trump clearly did not my, – my hunch is that – I shouldn't say clearly. My hunch is that Trump is not happy that the Mueller report is out in the world. But Barr got it out and released it to the world, which was – which is not – what somebody who was just trying to carry water for President Trump would do. So anyway, I think he's right about that. On the flip side, I think most of my friends on the right are just simply wrong about how they talk about impeachment. First of all, I'm one of these guys who, and I wrote a column about this a little while ago, I thought 
George W. Bush committed an impeachable offense when he he agreed to sign the McCain-Feingold uh, campaign finance reform bill while saying up front, in his si- essentially in his signing statement and then a, in a press conference after, I believe, or at least a White House lawn statement, that he thought parts of it were unconstitutional. Well, you know, he, the president takes an oath to uphold the Constitution. And if he thought that there were parts of it that were unconstitutional, that's impeachable if he signs it, right? He, he, he takes an oath to faithfully execute the laws of the land and uphold the Constitution. Barack Obama, I also thought, that committed an impeachable act when he said he did not have the power to do uh, DACA and all that stuff unilaterally. And he said it over and over again. He said, I'm not a king. I'm not a king. And then when he couldn't get Congress to do what he wanted, he went and did exactly what he had said on the record was a tyrannical act by doing it anyway. That should have been impeachable, or at least I don't don't say should have been impeachable. I'm not saying they necessarily should have been impeached, but those are impeachable acts. And I would rather live in a country where lots of people recognize that. And so part of my problem with the way we talk about impeachment is we've outsourced it to the to basically a priestly class of lawyers. And there is this thing that we have in this culture where we don't want to do the serious thinking for ourselves. And so we want to go to experts who will give us a clear ruling one way or the other. And it's I know I go back to these analogies all the time about the um the augurs and haruspexes of ancient Rome and Greece, right? The guys who looked at bird entrails and whatnot to tell you whether or not someone was Caesar or whether or not we should go to war and all these kinds of things. I put it to you that there was nothing inside the birds that actually gave you a dispositive answer one way or the other. But people want... Save yourself. <laughs> people want a credentializer. They want a um, uh, someone who basically sacralizes a course of action and gives people a permission structure. And so we go and we look for lawyers to explain what is impeachable based upon, you know, strict, narrow readings of criminal law. But there are all sorts of things that are not violations of criminal law that are utterly impeachable. And I think, look, if I were a Democrat and the political calculation made sense to me, it's obvious to me that there's plenty of things that Donald Trump has done that are, that are impeachable. There are plenty of things in the Mueller report in both Part A and Part B or Volume 1 and Volume 2. Trump did many, many things that I think a reasonable person could say are impeachable offenses. Um, the mere fact that he kept trying to downplay or kill a national security investigation into the meddling of a foreign power – uh, into our elections because he thought it reflected poorly on the grandeur of his victory is is perfectly impeachable to me. Um, ordering people to violate the law is impeachable to me. The things he said at Reykjavik are impeachable to me. That doesn't mean I think he should be impeached as a prudential question, but um, I also don't need some former federal prosecutor or Alan Dershowitz to tell me what to think about those things. And so you know, for the example I keep using is read, if you get a chance, we'll, we'll link to the full list, but read the articles of impeachment for Andrew Johnson. They're fantastic. This is Article 10. I believe there were 11 articles of impeachment. Article 10, I'm not going to read the whole thing. 
That said, Andrew Johnson, President of the United States, unmindful of the high duties of his high office and the dignity and properties thereof, and of the harmony and courtesies which ought to exist and be maintained between the executive and the legislative branches of the government of the United States, designing and intending to set aside the rightful authorities and powers of Congress, did attempt to bring into disgrace, ridicule, hatred, and contempt and reproach the Congress of the United States and the several branches thereof to impair and destroy the regard and respect of all the good people of the United States and the legislative power thereof. Basically, Andrew Johnson told people that Congress sucks. Yeah, uh, he did. So you've been using this as an example of impeachment basically being whatever Congress decides. Right. But... Which is true, but and it's worth mentioning that Andrew Johnson's he did some he originated some aspects of like using the modern presidency as a political campaigning tool mm-hmm. that are actually genuinely bad. I think they were like pres- precedents that are not w- w- that should not have been set. Like I can't remember what he was campaigning. I think it has something. It was all about the Tenure of Office Act. That's what I remember from my APUS class. That was the controversy that sort of. That was that the radical Republicans ended up using to, to like begin this impeachment process. Um, but, I, but I remember I think before that whole thing started, Andrew Johnson was like campaigning, like going from stop to stop, trying to get this bill, his preferred version of a bill passed, which is right. bad. But yes, your your point still stands that like Congress can make impeachment whatever it wants. Right, and so but everyone talks about how oh my gosh this doesn't rise to the level of impeachable offense. Anything rises to the level of impeachable offense. If Congress impeaches you for it, uh-huh. <laughs> and 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 so the and part of so part of my underlying problem with all of this is that you know there used to be a very robust debate in this country about who was the guardian of our constitutional rights, and you know Marbury versus Madison said that um, the Supreme Court is the final decider of what our Constitution says. Right? It didn't say it is the sole decider. Of what our Constitution says. And there are all sorts of issues, constitutional issues, the Supreme Court will never intervene on. You know, there are all sorts of uh, disputes between uh, the legislative branch and the executive branch that the Supreme Court just wants no part of. And because at least it is a jealous guardian of its institutional authority, in part because it's the weakest branch and relies on public confidence in it. But Oh, it was the weakest branch. I'm not sure if it still is. Well, the reason why it, it becomes so strong is because we've invested in it this exact priestly yes. quality that I'm talking about, right? Yes. I mean, they might as well – I mean, the living constitution to me is is conceptually no different than taking an exacto knife down the breastplate of a dove and <laughs> saying, oh, look at this pancreas. Therefore, we have abortion on demand, right? I mean, that is the same concept. Once you say the text of the thing doesn't actually matter as much as what we read into it, you're basically saying the Constitution is a magical document rather than a real document. And we live in a country where we want to outsource our critical thinking to lawyers and the the, the nine robed masters of the Supreme Court are the high are the meisters of the citadel. They are the highest ranking lawyers. And so we give them this power and authority they should not have. It used to be in Congress, you could kill any legislation simply by calling to question the constitutionality of the legislation. And if the body voted it was unconstitutional, it's all over. Mm-hmm. And instead what they do is they they just put it in the sewage sluice and ship it all and slide it down to the Supreme Court. 
and they'll try to get and it's it's like taking shots on a goalie in hockey. Anything you just hope that eventually something will get passed and therefore it's constitutional. <laughs> That's magical thinking. It's not how it's supposed to work. And so again, look, the partisan stuff aside, I, I you know, uh, Donald Trump's not going to get impeached probably because they can't get the Senate to vote for removal. And because and also this raises another issue, which is that James Madison was a big champion of the impeachment power, but it was vital to prevent us from having an authority, you know, a, a, essentially a dictator for life, did not anticipate that we would have to that we would end up putting in term limits for presidents. And so when you read what he's writing about the impeachment power, you know, part of his point is that the president could use the power of the office, sort of like what you're talking about, what Andrew Johnson was doing to try and stay in office forever. And so therefore you needed some other mechanism to have a check on his ability to rule, you know, just just be, play the Mark Antony demagogue rallying up the crowd to get reelected in, in, ad infinitum. But now we have term limits. And so the idea that going into when an elections, what, 18 months away, something like that. Um, yeah. Um, yep. Exactly. 18 months. See, that's, that's, I have this incredible in, instinctive temporal grasp. And uh, on elections, I guess. I guess. Yeah. Um but, you know, it's a perfectly legitimate prudential question of whether or not you should impeach, try to impeach someone who you know you can't remove through the Senate, given the facts that we know now, and given the fact that the American people are going to have an opportunity to have a referendum on the the incumbent. It doesn't seem to me outrageous one way or the other, even if you think he did impeachable things. And I, 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 I honestly do. I mean, and I think that this idea that there was no collusion, yeah, there's no provable collusion, but the Mueller report is pretty clear that that whole campaign was was infested with shady characters who were perfectly happy to collude if they could figure out how to do it. <laughs> um, and 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 again, I think the idea of trying to kill a investigation into a foreign power meddling in our elections because it would reflect poorly on the president's you know uh, laurels to me is perfectly impeachable. But then again, I think basically all sorts of things are impeachable. I remember. Uh, I don't think we've talked about it on this podcast. So, you know, uh, Greta Van Susteren. I'm aware of her, yes. Yeah. So she used to be Fox. <laughs> um, I want to be very precise with my language here. She hated me with a blind passion. And um, <laughs> um, and I want to say, I don't say, I, I, you know, I don't think I had hate in my heart, but I was not particularly fond of her uh, either. And yeah, Greta Van Offel, you call. That's her. right. That's what I'm getting to. So I wrote. So the real one of the reasons why we had such bad blood was that during the Clinton impeachment stuff, I wrote a piece about her called, I believe, Greta Van Offel, and <laughs> uh, um, because she was such a classic, you know, lawyer's tactic. Uh, defender of Clinton in all regards. And she was one of these people, this is like where a lot of my ideas about impeachment come from, is from that period where her view was high crimes means not just crimes, it means like really serious crimes. And if you don't commit a really serious crime, you couldn't be impeached, which I think is is garbage. And she was on, I believe it was Larry King with uh, Judge Bork. And Judge Bork, and I write about it in the piece, uh, Judge Bork says, look, if you had a federal judge or Supreme Court justice who um, had an affair with an intern um, in his chambers, there's nothing illegal about that, but that's obviously impeachable for a sitting judge. And 
Katrina Vandenhovel did her sort of. You mean Greta Van Susteren? What, oh yeah, sorry, Greta, Greta Van Susteren. Different, different kind of worm. Yeah, sorry, completely unfair to Katrina Vandenhovel. Completely different disagreements with her. It's just that Van thing got me tripped up. Uh, just don't mix up Claus Van Bulow into all of this. That'd be even more confusing. Or, or Jean Claude Van Damme. No, <laughs> we don't even want to get into that. Uh, let's do a whole Van diagram on this. Anyway, so uh, uh, she could not comprehend the idea. She was just like, what? "But, but without any crime being committed, what, what?" And Judge Burke was like, "Yeah, absolutely." And to me, there are all sorts of things that have to do with just simply, you know, honor codes on most campuses are utterly meaningless now. But honor codes on places like West Point, almost none of them have to do with violations of law, or at least. The lowest hanging fruit of them have to do with violations of law, like stealing is in violation of the honor code. But there are lots of things that aren't crimes that can be in violation of an honor code. It seems to me we would be in a healthier country if we looked at impeachment as viola- violation of an honor code rather than violation, technical violation of the criminal law one way or another. And so my last point on all this, which is really where the, the really intense, meaty part of the right of nuance comes, is... I generally think Andy McCarthy has nailed all of this stuff, and I love Andy um, dearly. But one of the things – and I listen to the McCarthy Report all the time, and so should everybody. But one of the things that bothers me when I listen to Andy talk about this stuff and I listen to people who are a lot less fair-minded about this stuff than Andy is, people go back and forth, sort of like back and forth across the Vietnam border, like on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, between (laughs) saying the president isn't above the law, but at the same time – They constantly come up with these arguments for why the president is different from everybody else. And therefore, certain laws like the ability to indict him don't apply to him, right? And that's part of Barr's theory uh, is that you can't indict a sitting president. It comes from the OLC. There's debates about it and all the rest. That's fine. I understand as a prudential matter why there are two sides to that issue. But the fact that the president is the one human being in America that at least according to existing legal doctrine cannot be indicted for committing crimes while he's in office immediately says that he is in fact above the law, right? At least in a very important respect. And if he's in above the law in an important respect, then it is all the more important to have notions of some sort of honor code understanding about how a president is supposed to comport himself, which is why Madison considered, is it Federal 65? Um, uh, Madison talks about how impeachment is inherently a political thing. It's not a legal thing. The Congress can't put you in jail. Congress can't, you know, have you drawn and quartered. All it can do is fire you. And that's a political decision. And so if we want to talk about it as a political matter, whether Trump should be impeached or not, I think there are lots of good arguments on both sides. You know, Thomas Sowell, when he was on here, said it's not worth doing something if you can't actually do it. It's not worth talking about things you can't actually do or something like that. That's a pretty good argument for not impeaching him because if you can't get it – if you can't get him removed – and the reason you can't get him removed isn't just because a bunch of Republican hacks in the Senate don't want to remove him. It's because the American people at least at this point aren't dying to see him impeached. And if the American people aren't dying to see him impeached, I can question their judgment or I can agree with their judgment. That's not the issue. The simple fact is as a political matter, it just doesn't make sense right now when you have an election coming 18 months away. All right. So that's my riot of nuance. <sighs> Riotous. You like it? No, you hated it. So one of the things that, you know, I'm, one of the things I'm very glad, and I'm going to get to my second bit of punditry before we get to the important stuff like Avengers Endgame and Game of Thrones. Uh-huh. One of the uh, things that was very reassuring and affirming um, for me to have the fair Jessica on here about 
was that she completely concurred with me about how discomforting your macabre rictus is during these podcasts. <laughs> how do you want me to look? Do you want me to smile? No, that would freak me out even more. <laughs> Have you just sat there blankly smiling? <laughs> um, but it is, Come play with us. Uh, um, but anyway, so, uh, so one last thing. I, I wrote my LA Times column for today on this. Let me back up. I'm tr- just now trying to get interested in the Democratic primary stuff. Oh, good for you. Yeah, good for I mean, you that you waited this long. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I mean, professionally, I've maintained – a cert- I've done a certain amount of due diligence because you just sort of have to. But I've always found Democratic primaries so much less interesting than Republican primaries, in part because of the sociological difference throughout most of my lifetime, which is now changing, of the Democratic parties basically have always – Democratic Party has always been coalitional, while the Republican Party has always been more you know, ideational, if not ideological, right? So Republicans would debate – have debates about their dogma, about, you know, what their philosophy was and all of these kinds of things. And you would have to figure out what the political interests and coalitions were underlying some of those debates. But at the level of public rhetoric, I just found it more interesting to hear people have different arguments about what the role of government was and all of these various kinds of things. On the Democratic side, it was always this sort of popular front log rolling thing. You know, it never made much sense to me that the party of gay marriage was also the party of the Teamsters. <laughs> and um, uh, and so the, the, the politics of the Democratic primaries was always less interesting me, listening to me because I like arguments about ideas rather than arguments about what will win over the frickin' teachers' unions. And what's interesting now is that dynamic is starting to change. The Republican Party is becoming, and this is a point that Luke Thompson has made on this podcast before, uh, you know, that's the guy with the six cats, um, that the Republican Party is becoming a coalitional party, which is bound together by transactional demands on the on the politicians and whatnot, rather than uh, coherent philosophical commitments. And the Democratic Party is becoming an ideological party. And I think we're in the early stages of all that, and that may define the rest of our my my lifetime in politics is how the Democrats, because of this woke nonsense and intersectionality and identity politics and all the rest, is crafting an ideological and socialism, right, uh, is crafting an, I would not say, to say call it coherent is probably problematic, but a, an actual political philosophy that binds it together, an ideology that binds it together, regardless of sort of the coalitional interests. That's why we can see, you know, this what I would argue, you know, sand-poundingly stupid argument you hear from some of the sort of woke Twitter crowd that it is immoral to try to reach out to voters who voted for Donald Trump in 2016. I mean, that is just profoundly stupid. But uh, so anyway, I'm starting to get engaged in all of it. And what is fascinating to me is that Basically, I mean, there are a couple of those times. There are like 14 people running from Colorado. Um, two. Two. That feels like 14. And they're going to go nowhere. But it's Hickenlooper and the other guy, right? Michael Bennett with one T. Okay. Bastard. And uh, but we're, with the exception of a couple of those people and uh, Klobuchar every third day, basically Biden is the only person who is running aiming at – the actual majority of the Democratic Party. 
Harry Enten had this really good piece at CNN about how the majority of the Democratic Party is, he calls it the hidden Democratic Party, is older, um, is non-college educated, and describes themselves as moderate or conservative. And if you just followed Twitter, you would think the Democratic Party, um, that the major debates about public policy in the Democratic Party are whether they should kill the cows or the kulaks first, right? <laughs> I mean, it's all of this crazy left-wing crap. I mean, Bernie Sanders, in the last 24 or 48 hours, I've heard serious pieces on NPR, MSNBC, taking seriously the idea that we should give all felons the right to vote in prison, which is just you know, forget the public policy argument. And it's actually an interesting public policy argument about what the consequences of that would be, because you can actually see dudes in prison becoming an important electoral uh, constituency. (laughs) Seriously, Michael Brandori has talked about this. So what you have is if you, you have a lot of very sparsely populated rural counties that have prisons and they're big jobs programs, right? Uh Uh-huh. So the, they, the, my understanding is that the prisoners count towards the population of the county, but they don't actually get to vote in the county. And in Vermont, one of the things they do, I think it's Vermont, you get to vote where you lived when you committed your crime, (laughs) not in the county where the prison is. But so imagine, though, we passed a law that says you vote in the county where the prison is. All of a sudden, the prisoner vote is a major voting block in these sparsely you know, populated counties. Yeah, you'd see like uh, like Folsom Prison Blues style campaign rallies where candidates showed up to prisons, well, like, campaigned there. So I told this story on Glop as an example of a joke that I would not be telling today. That I, you know, cause there are, there are things I've matured. I'm trying to be a more serious person, but I've written about this in. In the mid-90s, I was at a bar with my friend Scott McLucas and this guy Tommy Lauterbach, and we were at the Big Hunt on Connecticut Avenue. A uh, place where poor decisions are often made. In fact, I, 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 I think it actually says above the door, come in for the poor decisions and cheap beer. <laughs> and um, So we're sitting there on a Tuesday night, as we were wont to do back in those days, uh, drinking at the bar, and it was primary night in D.C., and... Marion Barry had recently gone out of jail, and former mayor of, of D.C. And uh, they have this reporter at Marion Barry headquarters, and he's reporting on the scene there. And he says, "Oh, it's a raucous night here at Marion Barry headquarters." He, he ran again for mayor after he got out of jail, right? And he had campaigned in Lorton Prison out in Virginia, where he w- talked to all the inmates and said, "I'll get you." better deals in the commissary and better food and whatever if you get your family members to vote for me. And so on election on primary election night there's this reporter in the headquarters says, "Oh, it's a it's a raucous night here at Marion Barry headquarters. Huge turnout from the entire Barry coalition. Massive turnout from the ex-offender community." Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and so me and my buddies were we thought that was just hilarious and we decided we wanted to come up with a a uh, a beverage to celebrate to, as a tribute to the man. Oh, okay. So, this, yeah, is, this is now been told know. on yes. the podcast before. Right. So we came up with the Marion Barry Shooter, which was equal parts Jägermeister, Kahlua, bourbon, and Coke. 
And the reason we picked those four liquids is because we wanted a drink that was so black, not even the man could keep it down. <laughs> and uh, we were very proud of ourselves about that. And so one of the things that one of the consequences of this incredibly immature humor that I would not make today, you know, I, I, I want to maintain my viability to be appointed to the Fed now that Steve Moore has resigned um, for his humor writing, as he put it. No, too bad. Ramesh is going to get it. That, well, that, we'll talk about that in a second. But for... The next 10 years, if I went to like CPAC or one of those kinds of things and I'd be at a bar, these, you know, these young college kid or just out of college, young conservative guys would come up to me and order me Marion Barry shooters because they thought it was like this fun thing. And it, it is an awful drink. Yeah, uh. <laughs> <laughs> but this was also during a phase where we came up with lots of um, clever, uh, funny drinks in theory, but awful in reality. Uh, my friend Scott came up with the Occupado, which was this weird, like, Kahlua and Rumpelmann's thing. And the reason it was called the Occupado, and I, I swear it's true, is that it smelt exactly like an airplane bathroom, which actually has a distinct smell. And so yeah, it you, does. Yeah, you, yeah. Could, you, could, you could give it to a stranger and say, what does this smell like? And you know how, like, memory is really triggered by smell? Uh-huh. And they oh, my gosh, it's, that's like an airplane bathroom. <laughs> um, <laughs> So anyway, um, but so like uh, on the on the primary side, Biden, who I have a pretty good record of criticizing over the years, is it what he is doing is he's actually campaigning, appealing to those to the the non he's not trying to compete in the woke primary the way everybody else is. And what his strategy, such as it is, is to basically appeal to people who just want kind of a return to normalcy. And I actually want – this reminds me. I want to do a whole podcast on the 1920 election. Maybe we can get my friend, uh, the historian David Piatruza, in here. Um, I've mentioned his book on the show before. But 1920, The Year of Six Presidents, is a great book. And uh, you know, Warren Harding ran on this return to normalcy thing because, as we all know, under Woodrow Wilson, the country was put through hell. Uh, not just World War I, but uh, political oppression, mass censorship, race riots, the Red Scare – you know, the American Protective League, all these kinds of crazy, crazy things. Yeah, one of my favorite um, own the libs facts to point out is uh, that Woodrow Wilson imprisoned the socialist Eugene V. Debs and Warren Harding rele- released right. him. Yeah, no, they had to wait for the Republicans to come into office to release. I think the number, I could be wrong on this, is 6,000 political prisoners. I mean, one guy was thrown into jail. We've talked about this on the podcast before, but one guy was thrown into jail. Because he made a documentary about the American Revolution where he cast the British in a bad light. And that was seen as undermining the war effort because the British were our allies. Um, there was just an incredible amount of turmoil and tumult and rationing and all of these kinds of things. And I mean, Herbert Hoover, who oversaw, I believe it was, the, the, if not the Department of Agriculture, then the sort of the food rationing program of the Wilson administration. I think it was Commerce. The Commerce, that's right. Because... What's his name? Wallace, either Wall or the, either the original Wallace or that Wallace's fa- the the one who ran forty six. Right. Either him or his father or something was agriculture. I think then. I think I think that was later, but I think I think Henry Wallace was um, secretary of agriculture in the FDR administration, and then became vice president, and then got booted off the ticket because I don't think he was an actual communist. But a more useful idiot for the communists, <laughs> Wallace, you'll uh, hard to find. Uh-huh. Anyway, but my point is, is like, oh, so Hoover like oversaw the rationing of food, and he, I think he called 
lunch one of the worst damn extravagances in American life because <laughs> uh, he wanted people to eat less. People were sick of all of that. And Harding proposes a return to normalcy. Now, nothing that Trump has done approaches anything that Woodrow Wilson has done because Woodrow Wilson was the worst president in American history and he was a monster. But there are an enormous number of people who just feel like they've been put through the ringer, if not for the last two years, in the last 20 they feel like politics is crazy. They, Trump is in their headspace. Politics is dominating conversations. And Joe Biden, by being sort of avuncular old Uncle Joe, is appealing to people to say, hey, look, um, politics doesn't have to be like this. And yeah, he's appealing to nostalgia for Obama among liberals and Democrats. I think his biggest supporter among African-American women, um, which is another interesting aspect of our politics right now. All of my adult life, the the the... The African-American coalition of uh, our interests in the Democratic Party were seen as the most left-wing interests. They were pushing the party to the left, you know, and Jesse Jackson was organizing and galvanizing all that. It is now very clear that Hispanics and African-Americans in the Democratic Party are far more pragmatic than the sort of socialist barista crowd that supports people like AOC. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're the reasons why... Northam didn't get uh, didn't get forced out of office in Virginia because that majority of blacks in Virginia were like, no, leave him in there. And I think that skit from remember that skit that Chris Rock was in at the right after the election in 2016, where the two black guys are hanging out at an election night party and all of the sort of uh, woke white liberals, sort of pajama boy types. We're talking about how Hillary is definitely going to win. And as the night goes south, um, you know, these black guys are constantly saying, I just I can't believe it. Like, why aren't people turning out for Hillary the way they did for Barack Obama? I mean, maybe because you're replacing a charismatic 40 year old black guy with a 70 year old white woman. I mean, that's like the Knicks replacing Patrick Ewan with Neil Patrick Harris. (laughs) And all that kind of stuff. There's a certain amount of experiential pragmatism that African-Americans have in American politics because they've been alienated from both parties that they don't get invested in candidates other than Barack Obama the way a lot of the sort of purely ideological white uh, liberals do. Um, You know, the right side of history stuff really sweeps up these white liberals in ways that blacks are like, "Eh, maybe, you know, maybe we should have a little skepticism here. And they view politics much more the way other ethnic groups did in American history as a transactional thing, sort of like Tammany Hall style thing. And that's both good and bad in different aspects, but it now makes minorities in the Democratic primaries the much more pragmatic, non-insane force in Democratic politics than they've ever sort of been before. And I think it's kind of fascinating how that's playing out. I mean, you're the one who first pointed out that Politico piece to me where Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez lost or did or underperformed in her uh, primary bid against Crowley in in Queens, right? Queens, mm-hmm. Queens. She underperformed with minorities. All these people claim that they're speaking for minorities, but the minorities actually voted for the really powerful white guy who could help them out. And the she ran up huge totals in the precincts in her district that were dominated by rich white liberals who want to sort of virtue signal with their vote because they don't actually need anything from from politics or from government. And I think that distinction is going to be really interesting. I mean, Kamala Harris is going down the South. Her entire strategy, as I understand it, is to win South Carolina. And she's doing terribly there. Um, 
And meanwhile, Biden looks pretty strong there. Now, that could all change because Biden, one thing, if if history has shown us anything, is that at any moment, Joe Biden could start shouting, get these squirrels off of me, right? <laughs> and do something crazy and weird or say that China isn't a threat, which was incredibly stupid because Biden's a motor mouth and, you know, and he's got no brakes. You know, he can't stop that crazy thing and he's going to say something stupid. And he's old and I think he's lost a step and all of that. But I think this idea of voting for the guy who will be liberal, you know, and this idea that he's a moderate is insane. It just shows you how far left the Democratic Party has moved that now Joe Biden is considered sort of a conservative Democrat, which is nonsense. But he hearkens back to this idea that like politics could be normal and that Washington is not this thing that invests huge swaths of your your uh, identity in. Anyway, so I'm done with my punditry. No, you're not. You wanted to say something about Ramesh for the Fed. Oh, yeah. So uh, for listeners who don't know, um, as far as I know, there's only one Bloomberg segment on Bloomberg TV. Huge groundswell. But uh, when it looked like either Herman Cain or Moore was going to get out, they were talking about who else it might be. And and Ramesh was one of the names. I can't remember who the other two were. They don't matter. They don't matter. Um, and as someone who's been proposing that Ramesh be in the Supreme Court for 20 years now, I mean, Panuru for SCOTUS has been one of my, my mantras. I would love to see a dual appointment. Um, <laughs> and and this idea that um, you um, have to be a lawyer to be on the Supreme Court is is nonsense, particularly if we're going to the place where we're going to treat these people like priests anyway. I think Ramesh would be more faithful to the Constitution than a lot of the justices. And Ramesh is one of the only you know journalist guys I know who can actually take a side on federal you know, on, on the Federal Reserve arguments about the velocity of money. You know, he, he writes articles about this stuff that have those weird squiggly lines. In, oh, yeah, you know, those those things. Um, which I consider mostly witchcraft. But my hunch is, is that, uh, well, it's hard to say because Steve Moore was not vetted. Um, and Herman Cain, who I always thought was his sexual allegation stuff aside, was treated unfairly. By being lumped in with Moore. Look, I've known Steve Moore for a long time. He's a nice guy. He was not qualified to be appointed to the Fed. Yeah, but for some reason, everyone ignores the fact that Herman Cain was actually part of the St. Louis Fed. No, that's my point. Is that, like, you know, and everyone sort of forgets it or something. Yeah, and I, I think part of the problem there is that Herman Cain was perceived, rightly or wrongly, as someone who was just simply going to do the president's bidding on the Fed. And that's not a good look for the Fed. But um, uh, if those guys could be nominated, I would love, I think. You know, I would love to see Ramesh nominated, but if they if they vetted Ramesh, my guess is they would find things in his written record that uh, would not endear him to Trump. But that's near here or there. So uh, I want to move on to the really important stuff of the the pop culture, and it's not, we've finished the punditry portion of this program. We need more alliteration here, by the way. Please. Um, uh, but before we get to all of that, I want to talk uh, very briefly about our sponsor this week. Um, uh, we are, uh, supported by Sentinel Books, publisher of My Father Left Me Ireland, uh, by Michael Brendan Doherty, a senior writer at National Review. Um, he was on the most recent podcast before this one. I highly encourage people to listen to it. Um, it really is a wonderful, almost lyrical book. I don't normally like books written in letter form. Um, although I mean- You prefer numbers- Yes. Um, uh, I like I like puppetry in my books. No, um, but um, in terms of uh, what, what's the word epistolary? 
Uh, yeah, epistolary. Epistolary. Yeah, books written as letters or as correspondence, but this one is different and is great. So many of these days lack a clear sense of our cultural origins or even a vocabulary for expressing this lack, so we avoid talking about our roots altogether. Doherty has penned a memoir about the meaning of identity in America with the beauty and fluidity that Irish writers have always been known for. My Father Left Me Ireland is available wherever books are sold. And so that raises one one more sort of, uh, not punditry, but thumbsuckery point um, about this thing about identity that we talked about. I wanted to get more into it with, with Doherty is that I, I'm a big believer in staggered identity, right? We've talked about this a bunch of times. And one of the things I really would have loved to talk to Soul more about is he, Soul is, was so good at, debunking and standing athwart monocausality, um, which, as you know, one-thingism, as I call it, is, is our, our philosophical monism, as I think Arthur Brooks started calling it when we talked about it, is, is if there's one thing I hate, it's monocausality, right? <laughs> and, um, I remember, you know, I, I've had friends who try to boil down whether or not they should marry someone based upon a single issue, which I think is insane, right? You don't go on a car dealership and ask, uh, you know, I'm here today to buy a red car. Um, <laughs> uh, I remember Tim Russert used to do this all the time during the lead up to the Iraq war where he said, so what's the one reason? Boil it down for me. What is the one reason why we should topple Saddam Hussein? And um, I think that this is a sort of another example of what I was talking about before of wanting people to to do our thinking for us. And, you know, we outsource these things. And if you could just give me one dispositive, one single reason to do something, I don't have to recognize that there are nuances and there are trade-offs and, and all the rest. And so one of the things that I think comes, you know, it's funny because Michael's book is about identity and nationalism to a certain extent. And But what comes through in it is, in fact, that these things are um, much more fluid and it's that the point in life is actually to have a portfolio of identities, not a singular identity. I mean, you're Jack Butler. You're the co-host of the Remnant podcast. You were the researcher. Co-host. Uh, uh, we'll take that. We'll edit that out. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. uh, you are the uh, uh, the guy in the room of the Remnant podcast. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, you, uh, you're also a marathon runner, right? You're uh-huh. also a member of your family. You're also a Hillsdale guy. You're also a writer in your own right. Trick and, if you try to boil down your entire life to a single thing, particularly unless you're in an institution that really encourages you to do that, like, say, the priesthood or the Marines, it's a source for disaster. What you want to do is live a life where you see yourself as the friend of your friends, as the, help, as the member of your family, as a coworker to your coworkers, as a citizen – as a Catholic, a Jew, or whatever, but you want a rich portfolio. If I dedicated my entire life, solely dedicated my entire life to my daughter, I would smother her. If I dedicated my entire life to my wife, I'd be super creepy, right? Um, the reason why life is worth living is when you have um, a, an abundant diversity of sources of meaning and belonging. And the same thing goes for a society is where you have um, more avenues, more pluralities, more diversity of institutions 
and ways of living, you create more nooks and crannies in the, the social ecosystem for individuals to have their own pursuit of happiness. And I think that is something that gets really lost out there. And this is part of the point I was trying to make in my um, my big piece for National Review on on defending economic liberty is that economic liberty is one of these things that creates more opportunities for fe- people to find their own paths. And when you constrain economic liberty, when you constrain, you know, when you, as uh, as Nozick says, when you know, in a socialist society. Uh, capitalist acts between consenting adults would have to be banned. When you try to, you know, what socialism tries to do, what communism tries to do, what fascism tries to do, is they try to impose a singular idea on the entire society and have everybody conform with it. And that is always a tyrannical thing. And I think it is something that is 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 one of the ways in which economic liberty is so tied to liberty generally that doesn't get short shrift and which people like our friend Yoram Hazoni, who wrote a pretty, I would argue, bad faith and condescending uh, tweet thread about my piece just so he could go on his, his, his you know, Ahab-like quest to destroy deductive reasoning and abstract principles and conservatism, fail to understand. And that a, a singular understanding of what nationalism is, is by definition an attempt to impose a singular understanding of identity on people. And I think it is contrary to freedom. So, anything. Did you see Avengers Endgame? Yes. You may you may respond to any of that, or you may sit there in silence. I don't I don't care. But um, what do you think of Avengers Endgame? I think that movie is a once in a lifetime phenomenon that will never be replicated um, in many ways. For good or for ill? Uh well, I just think. Also, should we say spoilers are ahead or not? Yes. Let's yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll throw in a spoiler alarm. <laughs> I just think the way that it both literally and figuratively drew on 11 years of accumulated plot and character developments and then provided payoff for just about all of them. It cannot, even if they do, even if like 11 years from now there's a whole bunch of more characters and they they bring them all together again for a grand fight, the way it was specifically done in Endgame either cannot be replicated or it, they can replicate it and it will not be unoriginal. So that's like the way the specific way it was done will never hap- will never happen again, uh, and if it does happen again, it won't be. It will be just like oh, so they're they're doing that again. Okay. So did you have any problems with the time travel stuff? No, because I just decided not to care. I was I knew I wasn't watching uh, um, uh, Primer or whatever that 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 indie sci fi movie with like a fifteen hundred dollar budget that took the time travel really seriously and like was impossible to understand as a result. Um, but I, I, I mean, I've seen worse time travel movies. Yeah. So look, I, I, I have strong feelings about this in part because I've had in my head now for about fifteen years a sci-fi novel I want to write that heavily depended on time travel stuff, and I've always liked time travel stuff. Like when I was a kid, I used to obsess about having time, time machine, um, and not one that looked like a British phone booth. And um, not that there's anything wrong with you know Tardises, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, um, so one of the things I liked a great deal was they, with a little too much expo- cutesy explanation um, or explication about how this isn't like Back to the Future. You know, those jokes were kind of funny, but also they kind of broke the fourth wall a little bit. But um, uh, I liked that the 
theory of time travel that applied to this movie was that when you go back in time, you cannot actually change the present. Yeah. Right? You actually create a separate timeline that runs in parallel to your own, uh, which there's some physics, you know, physics is such a hot mess, but there is some physics to support, you know, the many universes stuff and all that. Yep. Um, but, and this is the real, this is where the spoiler arm should go in. Okay. Okay. So, at the end of the movie, when Captain America goes back to return all the stuff, yeah, all the uh, gems or whatever, right? The you stones, know, stones, yeah. yeah. Um, the cosmic cubic zirconia, um, and then he doesn't come back through the time machine, and it turns out we find out that it's because he decided to go back with his lost love and live a life starting in, I guess, the 30s or something like that? 40s? Yeah. Uh, 40s, right? And um, and then he shows up on the park bench as an old man, Steve Rogers. If he went back in time and, cha- and, 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 and changed the past to create a separate new parallel timeline, um, he should not have been able to return to the timeline from which by simply living long enough, from which he was sent back. No, because that's what they all did throughout the movie. They all returned to the original timeline despite creating new realities. Yeah, but they did it through the machine. Oh, I see. They went through the temporal gateway doomahickey. He went back in time and then just hung out with his wife and then, you know, because he was a cute old man, went out for a stroll because he knew what day they were going to be there and he showed up on the bench and he showed off his wedding ring and he was like, um... Uh, yeah, I chose to go a different way. He should not have been able to materialize, to, to live his life in that timeline because that means he would have changed the entire past of the movie that we just watched. Yeah, oh well. They didn't, <laughs> he was done with his con. I, I feel like Rob Long here. He was done with his contract. He, they wanted, he demanded it to be written out. Yeah, so that's, that's, the, uh, that's the major problem <laughs> with these movies, right, is that the, the driving narrative force for the characters in these movies is where their contracts are with the movie studio <laughs> yeah know? um if you got five more movies you're not going to be written out if if you're like um robert downey jr and to do another movie with him is going to cost you 50 million dollars or whatever it is it's like all right i guess it's time for yeah but that was an appropriate place for him to die he died yeah if anyone missed the spoiler alarm sorry yeah <laughs> so um but I, I liked it i really liked it i think it was a little overblown um i think it's like Maybe it's just me, but when an invading army from uh, another planet comes for a giant ground offensive, well, I, I, I'm I the first to thank our allies in Wakanda. <laughs> um, the U.S. Marines can't help out, too. I mean, like, it was on our soil. We should have had some of our troops. And also— Would that really have been helpful, though? They're fighting aliens. Well, Bucky, all he's doing is, you know, with his yeah, bionic finger shooting. A, no, he's not know. merely bionic. He's also he's also enhanced in other ways from from those experiments on him by by Zola or whatever. Um, there's only there's only Wakandans and superhumans in that in that whole debacle. I would not I would not want to send Marines into that. Um, I bet you there's some Marines who'd want to be in on the fight. But anyway, um, side note. I loved, loved, not just liked, loved the $6 million man. And yeah. one of the things that 
Oh, yeah, I know what you're about to rant about. I'm not going to rant. It just absolutely ruined it for me is that once you realize the physics of it, a super bionic arm is useless unless you have a super bionic shoulder socket. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. You know, because otherwise it would just pull out your arm whenever you try to lift you, up a you, car. You take some of these things a little too seriously. Because you're, you're, what are you like? You're like dreaming of some world where this all actually exists. Yes. <laughs> is that is that it? <laughs> Well, so, all right. So you haven't been watching Game of Thrones? No, but I because I have all the people I hang out around. I can't help but to learn about it through osmosis. Uh-huh. But but the osmosis that I have absorbed makes me it gives me a bit of Schadenfreude because I'm I'm hearing it's terrible now. Um, I'm hearing it's all they're all being they're being forced to conclude it, and it's just sucking really bad. I don't want to say it's sucking really bad. It is. They're they. It is. Like Pod makes the case that one of the reasons why they're not killing off characters who need to be killed off is because they think they might do spinoffs. I'm not sure that's true, but it's a plausible theory. It does seem like Arya and the Hound are going to go off and do a bunch of road movies together. But um, it does definitely have the feeling like they are writing the characters not as the characters, but as means to the end of the conclusion that they want, right? So it's like the the the. I, I kind of feel like um, Christopher Lloyd in Taxi, great sitcom, uh, where he played Jim Ignatowski, and he goes on this great rant about how towards the end of Star Trek they were just having Romulans doing things that Romulans would never do. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there's just so much stuff that is being done to hurry the plot along because they've decided – it's becoming almost allegorical where they've decided the moral conclusion of the thing and and the characters are just rushing headlong to fulfill a formula rather than actually doing what they're supposed to do and um, some incredible strategic blunders that are just infuriating. And I don't know if you know this about me, but I, I kind of like dogs. And Yes, I'm aware. Um, and – Jon Snow's treatment of his direwolf uh, ghost is just simply it's 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 out, outrageous, and it could be redeemed a little if they bring ghosts back, but uh, that stuff bothers me a great deal. And there just there just feels like there are a lot of inconsistencies that that hurt my feelings. Well, so uh, again, this is my understanding through osmosis. But you have this the whole show. I you I you read you wrote this thing a long time ago about how it was supposed to be the anti-Tolkien, right? And how the whole point of it was to show all these these instead of having black and white to have all these grays fighting each other, and you don't know exactly who to root for. Um, but meanwhile, they had a they had a black out, out there or a white. I won't be whatever you with the evil. The big evil is out there lurking. Right. This these ice zombies. Right. And they were out there, and it seemed for a while like the test was going to be the sort of whole the Reagan thing in that speech where he sort of offhandedly mused whether. Earth would be able to unite if aliens attacked. Right. And if my understanding is correct, in the second most recent episode, the aliens attacked. Mm-hmm. People united. And they won. And now that's not a problem anymore. Yeah, so like So what's what's left of the show? Why should I why do why do why do you care what happens in the rest of it? To see who sits on this throne that people have been fighting over and will continue to fight over once the show ends? Oh, grasshopper. Um, <laughs> Look, you know, I know you can. There's so only so much you can tell me without without yeah. without my watching the show, no, no, but it no, just no, seems I, kind of pointless. I agree to me. that the, the resolution of that storyline was somewhat unfulfilling. 
And but it's worth pointing out humanity didn't all unite. A big the bad people, a big one of the bad coalitions run by Cersei Lannister refused to join in the fight and just figured, okay, let them be chewed up by the ice zombies and um, we'll take care of what's left. And um, probably a dumb strategy, but it worked out for her pretty well, at least so far. Um, so humanity did not, in fact, unite. It's like most of the good parts of humanity, oh, not even most of humanity, because there are lots of parts of humanity that just weren't in on it. But most of the good guys signed up for the fight and they paid a steep price for it. But the it's still a very much an anti-Tolkien thing, right? Because if it was a Tolkien thing, defeating the orcs and Sauron, that's the end of the thing, right? You don't then have this three more episodes of of, of sort of almost nihilistic speculation about the, the permanent nature of politics and how um, people are just simply motivated by their interests rather than um, ideals about what is good, um, which is now where we are in the thing. So I still think it's kind of anti-Tolkien. Mm. Um, but so I, I, I defer. I, I'm just assuming that my opinions about Game of Thrones, if I watched it, would mirror the opinions that Ross Douthat has on it. And Ross had a very um, good tweet. Well, I assume it's good. Again, I don't know because I don't watch. And I actually don't watch, unlike Rob, who probably secretly watches. Yeah, yeah. Um, He's watching. <laughs> Uh, he said that after the whole ice zombie uh, conclusion thing, that there that the battle was supposed to be epic and interesting, but the the contrast with Tolkien, who is supposedly more black and white, is way more way more interesting because while that battle, while the equivalent battles in Lord of the Rings are happening, there are uh, extremely nuanced depictions of how people respond to power and to violence, and to threats, and to the corruptions thereof. Um, whereas in this, this ice zombie battle, everyone who's good is there and is just fighting. And it's, like, not really that interesting. Uh, I, I have to go look at it. Um, I'm not sure that's right, but I'm also not sure that you're doing it justice. Um, well, of course I'm not, because I don't watch the show. Uh, but that's fine, because I don't think... You said on the... Uh, I meant doing Ross's take on it justice, but anyway. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I can only do it so much justice without watching I the show. There's not a searing criticism. Uh, yeah, but um, I do. I disagree with you that again. Don't watch the show. So what? What does my opinion matter? You said in the second most recent episode of Glop that Game of Thrones is going to be year decades from now a Star Wars equivalent phenomenon, more or less. Did I? You said something like that. And I I don't think so. I think once this once it ends, I think people will look back on it as a sort of curiosity. Uh, maybe these spinoffs will succeed. Probably not. And it's because it's such a presentist driven phenomenon at the moment. There's and especially because the books aren't complete. Mm-hmm. It's just all entirely dependent on an in the moment sensation of watching it collectively and wondering what's going to happen. And especially if it concludes in a way that makes you unhappy, mm-hmm. then. That's possible. What will you care? The last season of The Wire was awful, and I still think The Wire was a great TV series. Um, But it only comes up when people are like, oh, yeah, The Wire was great. It's not like this thing that people are, like, obsessed with decades later. True. True. You might be right. I don't – I think Pod may have said this, not me, because I don't remember these words coming out of my mouth, but that's entirely possible. Um, I just have this, this bitter anti George R. R. Martin animus, as you can tell, because I think he's a ha- he was a before he started writing these books, he was just a 
sci-fi fantasy hack. He struck he struck gold with this. Well, gold that he has not been able to successfully extract from the mine. Yeah. Um, and got plenty of gold out of it. Yeah, he did, but he's not. I, I he's not done. Yeah. He's still not done. And I, uh, and the, uh, the again, if my perception is correct, the writers of the show have been unable to carry to conclusion his vision because once they've left once they left his mapping things sort of declined in quality and this is a mapping that he is incapable of providing himself or at least as of yet he has two more books to write yeah, he'll never finish them um the common it's happened before long be be wary when you start long sci-fi or fantasy series yeah. At, or, in or middle the life age, of, the life of Lyndon Johnson, right? <laughs> oh yeah, that's the he, yeah. What's his name? Caro. Uh, yeah, Caro is the he's the George R. R. Martin of political biographers. Yeah, uh, <laughs> each one. The funniest thing about his series is that each one of them keeps getting longer. Yeah, and he hasn't even reached the presidency yet. I don't think. Yeah, I don't know. I, I tuned out on all that, but um, um, all right. So no, no. But, okay, so. Uh, one thing I would love more feedback from, I did a little Twitter poll on this. Under the new regime, the sort of, when this is no longer a National Review podcast, the frequency of this podcast may increase, which might mean that the length of individual episodes might decrease. So, you know, if we did it daily, it would be like a shorter punditry thing, and then maybe one or two longer things during the week. Anyway, I'm still very curious from people about what they think of that whether they think it's a good idea or a bad idea. Um, would more predictability be good? All the rest. Because uh, we have some grand and exciting plans um, in the future. Uh, also, thank you. For, you know, the, 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 I actually studied this on iTunes. We have something like 3,000 and 3,500 or something like that. Five, like uh, ratings. Uh -huh. there's, a, there's the star rating thing, and most of them are five-star. Um, a totally unfair attack on you is one of the few one stars we've had in a while. Um, That's fine. I can take it. I know you can. Um, but the actual written reviews were at 976. And um, I know that I keep touting how word of mouth really matters. But, um, you know, the reviews matter as well. And if we could get those reviews back up, you know, over a thousand, that would be great. We'll um, have a celebration for it. And um, also, starting fairly soon, if people can start checking out JonahGoldberg.com, because I'm going to have to be doing some stuff over there um, in the near future, that would be great. And um, uh, thanks so much for the support. Thanks for the great feedback about the, the fair Jessica. Uh, we hope to have her back on at some point where we can actually talk, do some, do some punditry with her because she knows things about politics and um, um, we actually have our disagreements. Uh, oh my yeah it's terrifying and um, thanks to Jack thanks to everybody out there and we will uh, see you next time no you're on this podcast hello I'm Johnny Cash I hear the train are coming it's rolling around the bend and I ain't seen the sunshine I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom Prison And time keeps dragging on yeah! But that train keeps rolling On down to San Antonio When I was just a baby My mama told me, son 
Always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head and cry. What did you print out? It's a surprise. Okay. Um, That's frightening. Okay, I want to start with some punditry stuff. I want to do impeachment and bar and the stuff about the Democrats and other things like that. Um, ready? Mm-hmm. Recording? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll make you happy. There you go. <laughs> Thanks. Um, this is gold. <laughs> <laughs> you always say that to Scott, too. Well, that's because it's a long-running joke, is that the the immediate pre-glop banter is so much funnier than most of the stuff that we say. Uh, <laughs> and Rob's like, why aren't we recording this? This is gold. Uh, <laughs> so I kind of took it from him and just, I always say it. Because sometimes it's really not a lot funnier. You know, it's John talking about how he couldn't fix his garbage disposal or something. <laughs> it's like not interesting. <laughs> but I'm like, this is gold. Why aren't we recording this? You know, uh, we have an employee at AI who's from Canada. And he says that uh, in Canada, garbage disposals are called garburators, which I think is a much better term. That's fascinating. All right, well, let's get this thing started. Maybe we'll keep this 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 silver, yeah, <laughs> bronze, bronze, maybe copper, okay. uh, fool's gold, <laughs> pyrite, <laughs> other inanimate nouns. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.